The words that I'd like to direct your attention to, found once again in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 9, and verses 32 to 43. Acts 9, 32 to 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took him to the upper room. They took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. In turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Again, Father, we do pray for grace. Lord, apart from you, we know we can do nothing. We cannot and will not grow spiritually unless you cause us to grow. But we know you use means. You use your word. We pray that you use your word to grow us. We use prayer, and that's why we pray now that you would work in us to to cause us to mature in Christ-likeness, to mature in our understanding of your word, so that we would treasure you rightly. And Lord, we pray that you would also use the fellowship, the gathering of ourselves together today for for worship, even to, to break bread together. Lord, that you'd use all these means to grow us. But especially, we ask for your grace as we look at your word. Give us understanding. And help me to know how to make your word clear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Frank Abingdale, although he was only a teenager, had successfully convinced people that he was a pilot for Pan Am Airlines. He actually flew hundreds of thousands of miles with free access to hotel stays and meals. And after being a pilot, he eventually moved to Louisiana, where he forged a Harvard Law transcripts and passed the state bar exam. At 19, he was employed at the office of the attorney general of that state. He later got a a job as a physician at a local hospital. Now, the job he took luckily didn't require many medical procedures. It was mostly administrative. Um, however, there were still a few medical emergencies that he was called to, and 
he managed to muddle his way through those. And the movie, Catch Me If You Can, is a delightful reenactment of his life and exploits. And I bring that up because it's just an illustration of how a person can fake their credentials. And even to the extent that they can get a job in multiple different jobs. And certainly that sort of fraud happens today. And it could easily tempt one to think, well, credentials on there, therefore, aren't very important. They're not necessary. But I, I would beg to differ. They are necessary. It's important for us to know that when we go to a, a physician, um, that that person who's going to perform surgery on us has had a, gone to a competent, credible medical school and knows what they're doing. Or if you're accused of some gruesome crime that you didn't commit, you'd want to know that your attorney was competent was trained at a, at a decent school. And likewise, if you're on a transatlantic flight, you want to know that the pilot who's flying the plane knows how to land. And for the same reasons, Christians want to know that those who are leaders in the church, particularly that uh, interpret the Bible and offer advice in regard to how to live according to its teachings, you, Christians want to know that those people have been trained at reputable schools, or whether that's a seminary or Bible school. But if you think about it, in the early church, those institutions didn't exist. And so how would a person know if a teacher should be believed? How would they know if they are credible? Well, because of this, God foresaw this challenge. And he authenticated the teachings of his true servants through miracles. He gave, most throughout history, he gave a number of his servants miracles to verify that they truly were speaking on behalf of God. You might think of Moses, right? Not only before the Egyptians, but even afterwards with the Israelites. In fact, the Israelites need to be reminded through some really terrible miracles that were performed that he was displeased with their grumbling and complaining. And so it verified Moses was an authentic representative of the holy God. Later on, Elijah and Elisha also gave, were given the power to perform miracles, to verify they were speaking as genuine prophets. And even the apostles, as you know, were giving these powers. Christ himself, actually, verified that he was the Messiah by performing miracles. In fact, you might recall that when John the Baptist um, may be was having a crisis of faith or just wanted verification that Jesus truly was the Messiah, he sent two of his disciples to him and, they, and asked if he was. And Jesus answered them in Mark 11, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus verifies his credentials, so to speak, as the Messiah by citing his miracles. You know that, I'm, that I am the chosen one because I'm doing exactly what the Messiah was said he would do. He performs these miracles. And so knowing that the early church would need to know who is valid and who is not valid, God gave the apostles the ability to perform miracles through the Holy Spirit. He didn't want there to be any doubt as to who his authoritative messengers were. They needed to have clear authentication. And this became most necessary, especially in the section of Acts, which we're going to begin looking at this morning. Acts chapter 9 through 
Acts chapter 11. Because this section in Acts that we will look at just briefly today, it narrates two miracles that Peter performed along the coast of Israel. And the point of these two miracles is to visibly authenticate that the message that Peter is going to be teaching is coming from an apostle. That's really the point of all this this whole passage, just to prove Peter is a legitimate teacher of uh, the scriptures. He is God's prophet. He is an extension of the ministry of Christ. Uh, The miracles he performs parallel other miracles that Christ performs. And the reason that this... uh, Peter's apostolic authority is so important is because in the next chapter, Acts chapter 10, and then also in chapter 11, Peter is going to receive revelation and begin to teach something that will be absolutely earth shattering to both Jews and Gentiles, especially to Jews. uh, He's going to reveal a doctrine, a teaching often that we take for granted that will be a huge paradigm shift and very difficult for the Jews actually to embrace. And I'll explain why that is. So it needs to be clear, though, that he's not making this up. He's serving as an authentic apostle of Christ. And what he is going to actually teach in chapters 10 and 11 is that the Gentiles can receive the same Holy Spirit that has been promised to the Jews. And in order to understand why this is going to be so shocking, it's it's really helpful to understand the Old Testament context of this idea of the Holy Spirit and His presence. And it starts by beginning to actually understand uh, God and His holiness. The foundation of Israel's relationship with God really is based upon the reality that He is a holy God. Only a holy people could come into the presence of a holy God. And so when God set Israel apart to be his people and said, you are going to be a holy people set apart for me. He also gives them instructions on what they will need to do to become holy, to become set apart. All right. The problem, though, with this is that there is nobody that is by their nature holy. Because the minute a person sins and we come into those world sinners, the minute that we sin, we are defiled. We are not holy. All are defiled and corrupted by sin. But God wanted to make Israel holy and allow them to come into his presence. And so what he did is he gave them a provision for how their unholiness could be removed. And simply stated, that was through the sacrificial system and through the mediation of priests. Everything that's really revealed in Leviticus and Exodus. Now, this is how the logic of the sacrificial system worked. All right, before... Adam sinned. Right? Everything was fine. Really, everything was holy. There was no sin. And of course, because there was no sin, there was no death. Death came into the world through sin. Right? There was no death before Adam sinned. Death was a consequence of sin. Right? Romans 5.12. And the wages or the results or consequence of sin is death. Romans 6.23. So sin resulted in death, which also resulted in consequence of a separation between us and God. And that's why Adam and Eve were immediately kicked out of the garden. And you might recall that the first thing that Adam did, or not, not Adam, but the first thing God did, see, as Adam and Eve discovered that they were naked and they were ashamed, 
is God provided a covering for their nakedness. The word there is, is an atonement, essentially. A covering for their shame. And the covering for their shame was the skin of an animal. The first thing to die was that animal in order that was served to cover the consequences of their sin. God was giving them a, a picture of the consequence of sin. But the point is, to cover the sin, something had to die. And this is the principle behind holiness. The way to become holy, the way sin can be cleansed or removed, is through death. Something has to die in place of the sinner. So the animal paid the price for their sin and gave them a temporary covering. And no sinner could come into the presence of God unless something gave up its life to pay the price of that sin. And this is explained in Leviticus 17.11. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Right? Blood effectually atones because it's the taking of a life. The wages of sin is death. So, in the Mosaic Law, God made it clear also that there are degrees of holiness, standards. Oh, man, it didn't come clear. It didn't work. Bummer. All right. That's all right. I had a PowerPoint slide that would have helped, but that's not going to help much. All right. Anyhow, I'll give it to you later. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll describe through words what this would have been like, like the Puritans would have. They didn't have PowerPoint. So... In the Mosaic Law, there were clear standards by how the holiness could be achieved, and there was degrees of holiness. So, along with those degrees of holiness, there were also standards that need to be observed, right? Because what, even if a person was made holy, once they disobeyed, they would be defiled, and then they would be unholy again. And so they needed not only to be told how to become holy, but how to remain holy. So, atonement in itself was not enough. Holy living was also necessary. All right, so there were, there were more or less three levels of holiness. Right? There was something was holy that is completely set apart for God, belonging to him. And then there were things that were common. And there were two categories of things that were common. Basically, cleaned items and unclean things or unclean people. Okay? Sinning or, bringing in the, or being in the presence of sin could cause a clean item to become unclean or a holy item to become unclean. But it could be cleansed through sacrifice because death is the price for sin. And so a cleansed item, something that was unclean, could actually become clean and something clean could then be further cleansed and become holy. And that would happen through sacrifice. Um, the, the, the process of making something holy is what was called sanctification. Going, something, going from unclean to clean or clean to holy. And so a holy item also could become unclean through the breaking of a rule. And that defilement would cause something to go from holy to being common. So another way to illustrate this would be imagine deciding to play soccer in your mother's wedding dress. Right, something that was special, set apart, that, that, is, that was used once, right? Because, because it's such a sacred, so to speak, item. 
to be then used in a, such a common way would be a defilement. Right? We'd all be like offended by that. Because we just realize that's, that, that, that's something that's special being used for a common purpose. Well, that's, that's really what's being kind of de- denoted in something being holy, getting defiled. Because it's being used wrongly. It was supposed to be set apart and special. Now imagine that you not only played soccer in it. Let's say it remained clean even though you played soccer and you used it for a common purpose. But imagine you'd go one step further and the toilet overflows and you use your mother's wedding dress to clean up the filth from the overflowed toilet. That would be even more disgusting, more appalling, because you're taking something that was set apart, something that's special, and you're actually using it for a dirty purpose. It's defiled. Now, what's your mom going to want to do besides just being upset? She's going to want to have it cleansed. And not only is she going to want it cleansed, having it go through the dry cleaners or whatever, she would also then want to set it apart again, put it back in the garment bag. We'll, we'll never be touched again. You know, put it under lock and key. Well, that's 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 what this that, that's kind of describes the, the, the degrees of holiness. Israel was to be set apart. They were to be holy. Everything about the tabernacle was to be holy. The priests were to be holy. They were they were to, to keep themselves from defilement. And one of the ways they could be defiled is being in the presence of sin or even more particular. In the presence of Gentiles who had no means of cleansing themselves. So Gentiles by nature were unclean and dirty, spiritually speaking. So in order for something to be common, to be acceptable to Christ, it needed to be made holy through an atoning sacrifice. Now, it was nearly impossible to remain common, to remain, uh, especially remain holy, but even remain common and to come into contact with Gentiles because they're unclean people. Right? Even good Gentiles were filthy and corrupting. Right? This is why there's such a strong emphasis in uh, the Old Testament about being separate from the Gentiles, and especially not marrying them or not uh, collaborating with them, but being dis- distinct. Don't even eat with them because they will corrupt you. They're dirty. They're not holy like you are, Israel. Like They don't have a means of cleansing themselves like you do, Israel. So I'll try and illustrate it, what, what the Gentiles would have been like for Israelites through another analogy. And you'll have to use your imagination with me on this. Imagine that COVID-19 was as bad as some people feared it would be. And many people beyond what was expected lost their lives. And for thousands of years, thousands of years, the fear of germs prevailed in our culture and society. And then imagine after living for thousands of years under COVID restrictions, seeing people die from the disease, loved ones that you really came and believed in and valued all the rules regarding vaccination, masking, and separation. Now then imagine that what you would think if you saw a man in the grocery store in the produce section, who was demonstrating signs of having been infected with COVID. They were sneezing. They were coughing as they were examining the fruit. They were not only doing that, but they were unmasked. And it was clear that they hadn't washed their hands. Imagine how you would feel 
after living in a culture that feared becoming defiled. This is more or less how a first century Jew would have seen a spiritually contaminated Gentile. And then imagine, at the same time, one of the top epidemiologists in the country um, announces that you no longer have to follow these restrictions. You no longer have to mask. You no longer have to uh, get vaccinated. Totally unnecessary. In fact, what we want you to do is we want you to embrace anybody that's infected with COVID. Welcome them in. And you don't even need to wash your hands anymore. Now, if you had been living under those conditions of fear of defilement for all for thousands of years, that's what defined your culture. And all of a sudden, some guy just decides, no, it's all unnecessary. You would want him to provide proof. You'd want, it, you'd want to know that this person really knows what they're talking about, that there's science behind their assertions. You'd want to check their credentials. Right? What made Israel distinct was their separation from the Gentiles. And now Peter is about to begin to teach that that separation is no longer necessary. Something that, again, we would just almost take for granted would have been incredibly paradigm shifting for the Jews. And not only is, is, is he going to say, no, you can actually you can eat with Gentiles now. He's going to say Gentiles can actually be indwelt by the person of God himself. Now, think about how shocking that would be. You couldn't even go anywhere near the tabernacle without a, a, a full process of being sanctified through things getting killed. And now Peter's saying all they need to do is believe and they can be indwelt by God himself. Well, God knew this was going to be shocking. And so he's going out of his way to show what Peter is going to teach is not something he has made up. He is teaching what God wants him to teach, that Jews and Gentiles are being made fellow heirs through the blood of Christ. Well, this brings us to the first story. A paralytic man is healed. Again, the purpose of Luke in including this account in Acts is to demonstrate that Peter is endowed with miraculous spiritual power to show that he's an authentic representative of Christ. And in fact, again, he's, he's continuing actually in the Christ's ministry. The, the miracle Peter performs on Aeneas here very purposefully parallels the miracle that Christ performed in Mark chapter 2. You might recall that in that chapter, Jesus was teaching in a home and some friends of a, of a paralyzed man were so desperate to see their friend healed, they actually tore off the roof and let him down uh, in the, from the roof into the center of where Jesus was teaching. And Jesus heals him. But before he heals him, he actually just simply looks at the man and tells them, your sins are forgiven. Now, he did that because he was going to make a point. It shocked the Pharisees. They want to know, well, who is it that has authority to forgive a man? Jesus is wanting to show that not only does he have authority to forgive, but he has the power to heal. Then tells the man, your sins are forgiven. Uh, he tells um, these Pharisees in Mark 2, chapter 9, he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And that was, that was those were his words. And then, again, this story parallels Peter's healing of Aeneas. Because when Peter is introduced to Aeneas, Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make up your bed. And immediately he rose. This is essentially the same thing that Jesus told the paralytic in Mark 2. The primary difference between these two healings is the authority on how they're healed. Jesus heals very explicitly through his own power and authority. I want you to know, Pharisees, I have the power to not only heal this man, but to forgive him. It's coming from me. It's my power. Notice where Peter's power comes from. Aeneas, Jesus Christ, heals you. Right? The, the, the power is in a Peter. The power is from Jesus Christ. And that emphasizes Peter is a servant of Christ. He is teaching what Christ would have him teach, proclaiming what Christ would have him proclaim. And notice also the text says, all the residents of Lydda and Shara saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Well, who is it that they saw? The formerly paralyzed man. And the result was they turned to the Lord. Well, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us, that this wasn't some fluke. It wasn't some healing that took place in some unknown area. And it wasn't just rumor. Like the people knew this person. And so it was obvious that a real miracle had occurred. Because they knew the man. They knew he'd been paralyzed for eight years. And all of a sudden he's up and walking around. Something miraculous happened. So it's not just faked. It's a real miracle. In other words, what Peter is teaching is based in the real authority of Christ. Just as the miracle is real. And the next story about Tabitha affirms the same truths. Peter's an authentic extension of the ministry of Jesus. Now, the parallel, the parallel account of this healing is found in Mark chapter 5. And this is when Jesus raises up the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Uh, Jairus was a synagogue leader in Galilee. And Mark writes that when Jesus brought the girl to life... When taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now, I read that because Peter's words to Tabitha in Acts 9 are almost exactly the same as Jesus' words to Talitha. In fact, you can see what the difference is. It's a letter. Because it's two different people, two different names. But I think that's also why Peter goes out of his way to emphasize this young woman's name was both Dorcas and Tabitha. They mean the same thing, different languages. They both mean gazelle. But he mentions Tabitha, emphasizes that, though she was known as Dorcas, because in order to draw out this parallel with what Jesus did, Peter is doing the same miracles that Jesus performed. He's an extension of his ministry. And this, again, it's critical to establish this because, again, Peter is going to receive shocking revelation that Christ will not only sanctify the Gentiles as well as Jews, he's going to give them the Holy Spirit. And this is going to be tremendously difficult for the Jews to accept, and for two reasons. The first reason is the holiness code that I briefly described to you that's, that's explained in Leviticus demanded that Jews be separate from Gentiles. The whole 
point of Leviticus is to say, don't get yourself mixed up with dirty things like Gentiles. All those rules about dietary restrictions and even the obscure things about how to dress and different customs that often confuse people. The whole point of those restrictions is don't be like the Gentiles. Don't go anywhere near the Gentiles. If you can possibly avoid it. And now all of a sudden, Peter's saying, embrace them. They get the same Holy Spirit that you have been promised. Which is actually the second thing that they have trouble with. Not only can these unclean Gentiles be indwelt by a holy God, but second of all, they're promised our Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't promised to the Gentiles. It was promised to the Jews. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, it's not Acts, sorry, Ezekiel chapter 36. And begin reading with me in in, uh, verse 23. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 23. This is when the Holy Spirit is promised. There's a few other parallel passages, but this is the, the central one. That promises the Holy Spirit. It says, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, right? among the Gentiles. That's the word. And which you have profaned, which you have profaned among them. And the nations or Gentiles will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the Gentiles and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And this is the the kicker. Verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I want to emphasize that they're going to be his people because they're going to have his spirit dwelling in them, not just, not just um, empowering them. The, the Holy Spirit would come upon people like David and Saul and, and Moses and empower them to do miraculous things, but he never indwelt them permanently in the Old Testament. That couldn't happen until the atonement of Christ. Because they need to be completely cleansed. And only Christ could completely cleanse them. The perfect Lamb of God. And now he's saying they can... The, 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 Ezekiel's saying that they will receive the Holy Spirit within them. He's promising, this is for you. You're my people. I've set you apart to be holy. And then Peter comes up in, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. And he's saying, the Gentiles are getting the gift that was promised to the Jews. And and let me just emphasize the greatest gift that could ever be imagined. There is no greater gift that has ever been promised to anyone than the presence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that, that would that honestly rivals our salvation. Because it is the gift of God. And of course, what makes our salvation great is that we get to be with God for all eternity and be cleansed. But we're just we're already experiencing that now, just in part. So the question would be, why would Gentiles receive the indwelling person of God and not his chosen people? I mean, again, this would be like a wealthy father, just just maybe a millionaire, a billionaire, giving his children just a little bit of their inheritance and giving almost all of his inheritance to his butler. 
It would just seem unjust. That's our gift. We're your chosen people. Why do they get it? And in fact, it's so upsetting that this is going to be uh, what breaks many Gentile, many Jews from uh, believing what Paul has to teach. In fact, many of the Jews would be who were initially tolerant of Paul's teaching in Acts will eventually become enraged and hostile when they hear that Gentiles can be fellow heirs of the kingdom. I'll just mention a few passages where this is made clear. For instance, when Paul preaches in Antioch, he concludes his message this way. This is in Acts 13, verse 47. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul's saying the same thing Peter's about to announce. In verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Right? The Gentiles are like, we too, who are, once, who are dirty and unclean, the, the Jews don't even want to eat with us. We get the Holy Spirit. They're ecstatic. They're, and the word of God spreads and Gentiles are getting saved. But in verse 50, it says, but the Jews respond by inciting the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They were fine until they mentioned the Gentiles. Right? The same pattern occurs in Iconium, in Lystra, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, and then in Jerusalem. In fact, when Paul goes to Jerusalem and he's, he actually, his presence there because he's with a Gentile uh, who had been circumcised, Timothy, it stirs up the Jews to actually create a riot. This is in Acts chapter 21. And he's attacked by the Jews until the Romans intervene. And then the tribune gives Paul an opportunity to at least actually share his testimony with the crowd of Jews that have been previously wanting to stone him. And then Paul concludes his message, his testimony to the Jews, saying this to them. He says, Jesus said to him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Notice what it says here. Next verse, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Up until he mentioned that he was commanded to go to the Gentiles, they listened. But when they heard this, then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. I mean, so there was hostility from the religious leaders when they began to preach Christ. Because Jesus was the true Messiah. But there, of course, was evidence for that. But nothing compares to the shock and the rage and the hostility that, is, um, that stirs up the Jews when they hear not only is Jesus the Christ, but Jesus has welcomed Gentiles as well to be fellow heirs of the kingdom. It's, it's incredibly paradigm-shifting. Shocking. And I want to just conclude this message by addressing one of the major questions that commentators bring up about this section. And that, the question is this. We just heard about Paul's conversion. And then there's this transition about Peter and then the message he receives from Cornelius. And then uh, the, the, Jew, the Gentiles being fellow heirs. Why do we go from Paul and then this section about Peter and then basically the rest of Acts is about Paul? Like if we've been talking about Paul, why are we going back to Peter? 
Well, I think the reason for this is to show that Paul wasn't making up what he preached about the salvation going to the Gentiles. Because it would be very easy to believe that this is just Paul who's kind of doing his own thing. He wasn't even saved under the normal, <laughs> under the preaching of the apostles or even the deacons. He was saved on the way to Damascus. Right? Maybe he's creating this own gospel and there never really was a gospel that was extended to the Gentiles. To, to show that there's a continuity with what Paul is going to preach. To show that it is that, that they that Paul preaches the same thing that the other apostles preach. God goes out of his way. Before we start hearing the, the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles, he goes out of his way to show that his appointed leader of the church teaches the exact same thing. And in fact, he's the one initially who taught it. Right? Paul will be the primary apostle sent to the Gentiles. But... Peter, was, as the leader of the church, is the one who received this revelation first. And show it, so it shows that there's not a disunity amongst the apostles. They all preach the same thing, which is what Christ wanted to communicate, that his blood is powerful to make the foulest clean. That all people, no matter how spiritually defiled, can be completely cleansed through the blood of Christ. To the extent that the Holy Spirit will comfortably indwell them. So even though Paul would be the apostle particularly selected to bring this good news to the Gentiles, Peter is the one who first receives this revelation. And Paul actually explains this in Ephesians chapter 3. We read this earlier, but it's worth reading in light of understanding the drama of this section. Paul tells the Ephesians, For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Right? He's a prisoner because of the Gentiles. Why? Because the Jews don't want the Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit. They don't want the Gentiles to know the gospel. Paul's imprisoned on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse 2. Assuming that you've heard of this stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How this mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. That's the offense of the gospel, that Gentiles could become holy. And it was shocking to the early church. And so it's worth asking how this section, even as explained in Ephesians 3, this section in Acts 9, how does it apply to us today? I think that the, the simple answer is simply, we should be thankful. Just, just pure thankfulness. As Gentiles, we should stand in awe of the fact that, that the holy God has chosen to give unclean people access into his presence. And, and not just giving us access to his presence, but personally indwelling us as the Holy Spirit does. 
through the blood of Jesus the Messiah shed on the cross, unclean people have not only been made clean, they have been made permanently holy. That's the power of the blood. We are, are people who have been made holy through the blood of Christ. And that holiness cannot be removed because of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. There is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Since stains are lost in the life-giving flow, there's wonderful power in the blood. Lord, we could sing. Sing and sing some more about the power of your blood to make even the foulest clean. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for thee. Thank you, Christ, for your faithfulness to endure till the end, to be, a, to be a, a perfect sacrifice so that we Gentiles can be fellow heirs, can be brothers and sisters of you, the Holy One, the Son of God. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ.